Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're speaking with Dr. Stephen Ecker about the politics of the Reformation. Dr. Ecker has been teaching at Southeastern since 2013 and was elected to the faculty in 2015. He is a specialist in the history of the Reformation in Europe and has done extensive work on the Swiss Reformation. He earned his Bachelor of Arts from Palm Beach Atlantic University, a Master of Divinity from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and both a PhD and a Master of Letters from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, he has published articles and essays on the Reformation, the theology of the Reformers, and the Anabaptist. His dissertation at St. Andrews explored the Bernese disputations of 1532 and 1538 historically and theologically. Thank you for being with us today, uh, Dr. Ecker. Well, thank you uh, for having me. Uh, anytime I can talk about the Reformation, the early modern period, the Reformers, I'm super stoked to do so. Well, we, we had a mentorship uh, uh, session in which you uh, were our guest, and the, the emphasis of this year's, uh, this academic year's uh, mentorship was uh, faith in the public square, which fit in very well with the election of 2020 and all that has transpired there. And so we felt like talking about uh, it, the, the politics of the Reformation in general, and in particular, uh, the politics of the Anabaptist. We felt like this would be something that might be helpful for our listeners uh, to hear about. Um, before you came in, I was browsing through George Hunston Williams' huge book on the Radical Reformation, and um, I read about Pilgrim Marpeck. Pilgrim Marpeck may be my favorite evangelical uh, uh, Anabaptist, radical reformer, right, right along with uh, Balthazar Hubmeier. Um, Marpeck evidently was a person of some uh, means. He had an estate. He was on. Uh, he was. Uh, he was a magistrate. But when he became an Anabaptist, he quit. What was going on with the Anabaptists? Why did they think that? Um, a person couldn't be a Christian and involved in politics. What, what was their thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Marpeck's story, rather than being rags to riches, is more riches to rags. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he's the, the son of a, uh, of a wealthy, um, you know, magistrate, so he knows of this personally through his family. He serves in a magisterial capacity multiple times throughout his life, both uh, in Rottenburg, and then uh, eventually will make his way to uh, to Strasbourg. And what's fascinating is here you have somebody who um, really has what I would characterize as more of a middling position in the Anabaptists. Uh, if you think about the, the the nature of the Radical Reformation or the Anabaptists on a continuum, he's more of a middling position in relation to the church-state relations. He's not opposed to um, Christians holding positions. Um, but there are limitations with that. There are boundaries, of course, that will eventually uh, cost him his, his position at times. And so he does end up in, in Strasbourg. Uh, in fact, the, the fact that he gets kicked out of Strasbourg 
for his Anabaptist tendencies is pretty is pretty interesting in and of itself. Strasbourg was an imperial free city. It's a much more tolerant area than most other places that we would think about in the 16th century, and yet he even gets kicked out of there um, and spends a number of years, almost like a almost like a wandering minister. Um, for, for these beliefs. And so really it is, he's, he's got deep-seated convictions about the nature of, uh, of the church that uh, goes decidedly against the grain of the ecclesiology of most of society and culture in the 16th century. And so believing the church to really be um, uh, more of a gathered, visible body of believers as opposed to a, re- as opposed to a mixed body is going to is going to understandably put him outside of the the norm of what we see during the 16th century. So he was one of the radical reformers and Anabaptist and we're going to have to define those terms for our audience to make sure that they they have some semblance of an idea of what we mean by that. Um, Most lay people are familiar with the the Reformation that it it started Uh, Many people identify it beginning with Luther. That's a convenient time. Uh, You have the Swiss Reformation. You have the Lutheran Reformation. Uh, It eventually becomes an English Reformation. So what what was the difference between the magisterial reformers and the radical reformers? Yeah, and I think that's a good way of of delineating it from the top is to to divide into uh, magisterial reformers, those reformers who are who are reforming under the authority of and oftentimes hand-in-hand hand with the magistrates themselves. Even as we look at those magisterial reformers, whether we're talking about Luther or Zwingli, Boots or Calvin, each of their context is very, very different. So the way in which they're ministering in relation to those magistrates is deeply complex and unique. That's why when we talk about Reformation studies, it's really, we don't use the term, but reformations, plural, mm-hmm. is really more historically accurate because what's going on in Luther's Wittenberg is very different than Zurich or even Zurich as a Confederate state, very different than a place like Bern, for instance, or Geneva. Um, and then, of course, you mentioned the English Reformation or the Scottish Reformation. I mean, the, the, the politics of this are so different in each of these locations, that even with the magisterial reformers, um, it is it's deeply complex, uh, and really shapes the way in which their ministries and their reformation efforts are are ultimately vetted out. So you do have these magisterial reformers that are again working with and under the authority uh, of the, the governing magistrates. The the radical reformers, um, these are people who are generally speaking working outside of the bounds of these authorities. They're doing stuff. Again, that's cutting against the grain of what is normal, what is typical or commonplace in the 16th century. Uh, And because of that, they will, all of them by and large, pay dearly for uh, for working uh, in those uh, in those spaces or you say coloring outside of the acceptable ecclesial lines uh, of the of the 16th century. Um, you, You mentioned the uh, the, the the Williams book, um, the way he divides it up into, yeah. into various groups. Um, that is certainly, we, radical Reformation studies been thinking about how do you characterize these people all the time. Yeah, William, yeah Williams said uh, the evangelical mm-hmm. uh, the ref, uh, reformers of the radical reformers mm-hmm. then the rationalist mm-hmm. 
and the the spiritualist. That's right. And and as I read it, and of course it's this tome. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just an enormous book. One got the feeling from reading it that it was a catch-all because many of the people that he's calling radical reformers would have nothing to do with one another. They really right. don't, you know, they really don't fit that well, do they? Uh, no, and that's and that's. I mean, it's it's helpful to have some of the categories that Williams gave to us. It's also um, in the historiography of Anabaptist or radical reformations. They've kind of moved away from that a bit. Um, uh, James Steyer, um, uh, Depperman, others. They have they have posited a, a different approach. To this you go back to. I think it's 1972. It's it's a journal article in the Mennonite Quarterly Review called "From Monogenesis to Polygenesis." Um, Packle, Steyer, and Depperman uh, wrote the article. And really, what they do is they situate it more in terms of geography. So you've got South German, Austrian, uh, North German, Dutch, and and they, they situate it geographically, which is which is helpful. And yet at the same time, these are modern ways of categorizing deeply complex people who are changing in their beliefs. They're moving around, oftentimes displaced because of persecution. And so even the categorization sometimes becomes a little too oversimplified. We're just trying to figure out ways to categorize this. But even going back to the the early um, historiography on this, which was written by the magisterial reformers. And we got to remember like Luther, Heinrich Bullinger, these are the guys who are writing the early history. History is written by the winners. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we keep that in mind. Um, and this this is helpful for us to really even begin to parse out what do we mean by terms? What do we mean by the term Anabaptist or radical reformation, right? I mean, radical reformation is one way of thinking about it. Um, we sometimes hear about it as the left wing of the Reformation. Um, not that they're necessarily liberal, like we would think of Protestant and liberal. They're just outside of the boundaries of the normal, uh, normal acceptable way of doing Reformation, as if that's something that even in the 16th century, who's determining what is acceptable and what is not. Everything to Rome is not acceptable at this point in time, yeah. what the Reformers are doing. Um, so when we think about this, then, it is really hard to categorize who fits where because the relationships are so complex, because there is such movement. Uh, And even the reformers, uh, they sometimes get this, they either get this wrong or they're confused. So one of of the things that I love about uh, about this is even in my work that you mentioned in in studying the Berenice Anabaptist was I came across Heinrich Bullinger, who's Zwingli's successor at Zurich. And in 1530, in one of his, his writings on the insolent sacrilege of the Anabaptist, he's there and he's really pressing in on the Anabaptist because of their appeal to the spirit, that they're not taking a stand on the authority of scripture. They're just relying to almost like a, a, a progressive notion of revelation. Almost that, like the Quakers would be in, exactly in, in, yes. many years later. A very subjective form yeah. of, of the spirit continuing to speak and guide. I mean, Thomas Munzer, for instance, the German reformer, he would, he would, he would say that you can know Christ um, apart from the scripture by means of the spirit in, in an equally... Um, in an equally similar way as if you had the text there y- yourself. So, I mean, this real reliance upon the Spirit of God to speak directly and in a normative way, right? Mm-hmm. So so in 1530, Bullinger's just going in on the Anabaptists. You're appealing too, too heavily to the Spirit. 1532, 
He's interacting with an Anabaptist in Bern named Hans Fistmeier. And he's saying, listen, you Anabaptists are relying too heavily upon the letter of the word of God, right? Like you're following a simple, straightforward, literal, what we would often refer to as a, as a biblicist reading of the text. And so Bullinger's a smart guy, right? Like, I mean, he led successfully the, 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 the church at Zurich for four decades. I mean, he's not an ignorant man. Um, is he misunderstanding who is and who isn't an Anabaptist? Perhaps is he just using it in a blanket pejorative label for sure, regardless of the, of the former. And that really is where some of the confusion comes in because uh, the term Anabaptist just becomes a blanket, um, uh, just a blanket pejorative label. Um, it's, it's our term Anabaptist, which is really just a, a Latinized form of two Greek words, Anna meaning again, and baptizo, meaning to baptize or to immerse. And so, so when Calvin wrote about them in the Institutes, did he use the expression Anabaptist? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's using this. Luther uses the, the term schwarmer. Yeah, the, um, the, 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 yeah. the, the enthusiasts. Yeah. Um, and again, they're using this as, as, as blanket. Now, sometimes they're just referred to as the Baptists, uh, even though we're not talking about, you know, Baptists coming from English separatists. We're talking about just people who are, um, believing in believer's baptism, believing in some case in, in a regenerate church. But again, not all of them believe that. It, it's just a blanket label that gets dumped onto the group for anyone who is operating outside of the, the parameters of the, the, the state churches. Uh, and so in something that I find endlessly fascinating, you get the Anabaptists, for instance, uh, at Zurich, who develop within and then emerge out from the reform efforts of Zwingli. These were some of them his converts. So yeah, not only his converts, they're his students. they're his disciples, yeah. right? They're his students. He, you know, F Felix Mons, who uh, he will one day famously stand beside the Lamont River as Mons is executed for his Anabaptist convictions. He taught Mons how to read Greek. I mean, these are these are close friendships. But but this in, this, this brings up an important point in that. Yeah, and, and this goes back to what we would all see as the danger of the union of church and state. Mm -hmm. In that here we have Zwingli using the the uh, the authority of the government to exercise church discipline. And how does he do this? I mean, he doesn't hesitate, or he doesn't. I don't think he did it happily, but he does it. Um, he he has uh, one of one of his own disciples. Mm -hmm not just one, but several, yeah. put to death, which goes to the whole point that the, it, the, the, the instrument that the government has is one of force and coercion. Sure. So by its very nature is antithetical to the, the, the point of the gospel mm -hmm. and the New Testament message, which was the point of the Anabaptists. If I read them correctly, sure. they, they were emphasizing over and over again that, that, that there should be... Today we would call it, I guess, separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. that the, that, and for the purpose that the state should not be used as the instrument of church discipline. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, and, and it's, it's important to understand that, right? But again, even with the term, we want to be clear because what is an Anabaptist and what is not an Anabaptist? So um, this group, for instance, at Zurich, um, they will very much come to convictions regarding freedom of conscience 
um, they they do not like the notion of a, a coerced form of belief. Uh, now, keep in mind too. Remember, this is a group that were, they were magisterial reformers, right? They're working with Zwingli. They were trying to reform the Swiss state church at Zurich, uh, and in many ways, for them, that fails only because they want to go further and faster than Zwingli feels acceptable. And there's a whole host of reasons as to why, but then that leads them really to this, these, these notions that, yes, there is a sense in which um, you don't want to coerce faith. You, you, faith is an internal thing yeah, that but manifests kill them? An, external, uh, an external expression. Yeah, but kill them? I mean, that's the thing that I find so... I, you say, okay, we, you know, one, one might be hearing me say this and say, yeah, but you're, you're applying modern standards uh, to, to a, uh, a, a time 500 years mm-hmm. ago. But there were people even 500 years ago that thought that this, this was outrageous, that, sure. that, that sure. uh, Calvin was using uh, the state to execute Servetus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, I mean, and let's 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 let our listeners know that uh, the way that Zwingli, uh, you know, how did they put them to death? It was it was more than just a little ironic that they drowned them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's not a that, there's nothing subtle. No, about I that. mean it was it was a it was a choice to give them what they would you know sort of pejoratively call their second baptism. It's very sarcastic. It's very demeaning. Um, and and you think about all of these magister reformers. I mean, whether you're talking about uh, whether you're talking about Luther and especially his later writings related to um, to the Jews, or even what he says about Muslims, what he would have called the Turks or the Roman Catholics. You mentioned Calvin's role in the execution of Servetus or or Zwingli in the execution of Mons and the and the other Anabaptists. I mean, these are these are troubling things for us. In modernity, to to begin to parse out again, you you never want to make excuses for bad behavior, and I certainly would would always want to begin and end with these are inexcusable things that are not uh, that are not befitting Christian behavior in any way, shape, or form. Um, at the same time, historically, we do want to situate this and understand this. Zwingli doesn't see himself as just executing Anabaptists. In fact, he doesn't see himself as doing it. It's the magistrates that are doing it. This is their divinely ordained role to care for and to protect society. And so what the Anabaptists were doing in calling for this believer's church and this believer's baptism Remember, the church and the state had been woven together, had been um, co-joined, you could say, for a thousand years. And so you don't just you don't just disentangle that quickly without in some way rupturing society and and creating a sense of of cultural chaos. And that's what that's what Zwingli feared. There's no question that that's a part of, of his fear in that. Um, he's also wanting to, he's also wanting to shepherd uh, the people of of Switzerland. Again, I'm not making excuses for his for his behavior um, because his language regarding Mansa's execution is horrific. I mean, he thinks that this is a good thing. This is not him somehow, you know, sadly sitting off to the side watching the match. No, he's participating in this. Let's be real clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, and and uh, I think that. You're, you're making a very good point. 
I think that it is fascinating uh, having the distance of history to see how someone, um, I mean, today, whenever we read the Anabaptists talking about a believer's church mm -hmm. and, that, and that there should be a, uh, a separation between church and state so that the state is not used as an instrument of coercion in religious matters. Um, today, we just see that as, well, of course, uh, why didn't they see that principle taught in the New Testament? Yet, for Zwingli, and not just Zwingli, uh, and that we can talk about some of the reasons why they did see it as such a threat. Uh, they saw it so threatening that it seemed justified to resort to capital punishment mm -hmm. to, to extinguish it. I think here's where perhaps things such as you mentioned uh, Thomas, uh, Thomas Munzer, Munzer. and the, the Peasants' Revolt. Um, what are some of the things going on uh, with, and, and of course there's the Munzer uh, rebellion. Mm -hmm. The Anabaptists were also associated with some pretty crazy mm -hmm. things. Uh, let's talk about those. Southeastern believes it is important to support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to the ministry in the church, the academy, or at the home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the waiver code CHRISTANDCULTURE, all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, for instance, I mentioned Thomas Munzer earlier, um, who's, who's a German uh, radical, embraces a, a more of a spiritualist approach. Um, he uh, was uh, spent time in, in Wittenberg with Luther. In fact, Luther uh, served as a reference for his getting a, a position not, not too far from, um, from Wittenberg. And then would later, Luther would later call him the Satan of Alstead for helping to lead the, the Germans' peasant revolt. And, and part of that is just, you know, somebody like Munzer, uh, he conflates uh, in many ways uh, his uh, social and political, the social and political ambitions of the peasants with his spiritual um, eschatological hope for the ushering in of the kingdom. Uh, and in what can only be described as really an attempt to truly force the kingdom of God to be at hand uh, helps to take part in, in the German Peasants Revolt, which of course is but a it, huge blot on Luther's story. Let's say um, it's, it's, an, it's, an armed it's an armed revolt. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you've got peasants who are, who are battling the, the authorities and who are, who are trying to fight for their, their rights as they see it and, and, uh, and, and they're poverty stricken. That you're, you're starting to see some of the, you're starting to really see some of the some of the long-term consequence of the dissolving of the old feudal system and the replacement of other isms that will come up, such as capitalism, communism, socialism, all these other yeah. things that surface in the early modern period. And so they're starting to see opportunities um, to gain in 
their their financial status, so and, the, and they're also again poverty stricken. So in the peasant revolt, um, of course, it fails. Luther will come out against it. How many how many peasants will die? Thousands. Yeah, I mean, Tens it's not. A, yeah, it's not. It's not a small. It's not a small revolt, and it's not. It's not localized in one area. So it's got. It props up in different different parts of uh, of Germany, um, and so it it really is. It really is for for the magisterial reformers and for the civil authorities. This really becomes the consequence of a re, what what you'll see is referred to as a reformation from below, as opposed to a reformation from above that is that is orderly, that is governed. I mean, this is what Luther wanted, right? He wanted an orderly uh, reformation. This is why he came back from the Wartburg um, when Andreas Karlstadt started taking his reformation in a in a way that was um, that was destructive as opposed to as opposed to edifying and orderly. Uh, and so Thomas Munzer is, is one of these examples, the German Peasants War. Of course you mentioned the city of Munster. Yeah, let's talk about which that. is different than Thomas Munzer. But um, it's crazy. Yeah. This, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And the the, 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 the Munster Rebellion, um, town of Munster is in the northwest corner of Germany. Um, this is where again you get uh, a you get some figures with charismatic personalities um, and charismatic teachings with charismatic, a capital C. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah. is so when you, when you talk about the town of Munster, you've got uh, individuals like Jan van Leiden, Jan Matheson that um, really embrace again. It's almost like a rebooting in some ways of the old Montanist heresy of uh, individual direct revelation from God that's normative. They become very charismatic leaders. Um, but again, and they're, again, remember, they're called Anabaptists, right? So you've got the Anabaptists at Zurich, the Swiss Evangelical Anabaptists, who will eventually not just establish a believer's church, but a believer's church that's, that is embodied by a separation of church and state and uh, a belief in non-resistance, what we would call pacifism, they're non-sword bearers, and that's to be contrasted against the 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 Anabaptist at Munster, who, following these these spiritual leaders, will will reinstitute a, a kingdom uh, at Munster with very strict um, ways of behaving. Not uh, just strict, but bizarre. Bizarre. Where to, we have they're trying to have open marriage. Uh, where women don't have the right to say no. Correct, yeah. Uh, Again, coercion. Think about this. The coercion of open marriages, women not being able to say no to marriage, the reinstitution of polygamy. Yeah. Um, these sorts of things. Again, some of the stuff that we would see, they're, they're reaching back in some respects to some of the things that we saw in the Old Testament uh, in terms of patterns of cultural behavior. But they're also coercing this behavior to the point that you believe like them or you're either kicked out of the city or your head's cut off. That's a far cry from the non-resistant pacifism of the Zurich Anabaptists. And yet again, they're all lumped in together. And, it, so, and, and doesn't that give some kind of context as, as we're wondering why is it that the magisterial reformers come down with such harsh um, uh, treatments it is because they they are very concerned about the, about society dissolving Correct. into into re, uh, into revolution and revolt. Correct. Again, remember the the Swiss Evangelical Anabaptists believe many of the same things that Zwingli believed. In fact, he taught them how to read the Bible. 
right? So their convictions are very close. It is the concern for the dissolving of the societal order. It is uh, a. It is not in in Zwingli's uh, estimation. It's not going to be an ordered reformation. This is the same thing that Luther has a concern with as it relates uh, to the peasants or people like Thomas Munzer or Andreas Karlstadt. He wanted a reformation that was orderly. He wanted a, a reformation that was in lockstep with the people. I mean, Zwingli on this is really interesting. He, he's, um, even though he wants to abolish the mass, he wants to move away from the, the Eucharist and, and transubstantiation. He, as he says, he, he'd rather wait until the people have been convinced of that rather than forcing it upon them and then them doing this in the corners of the Zurich state, right? So, and there's something, I mean, it's not just about keeping societal order together. There's something also pastoral there. I think this is what uh, pastors for, for hundreds of years have been dealing with these questions in relation to their congregants, right? What changes are needed and how quickly can I and should I make those changes? And there is inevitably a, a give and a take, a push and a pull there where you can go too far and you can and you can push too hard and too fast to make those changes and it can become corrosive even in, even in our 21st century context. So so I think that um, the the way that the magisterial reformers had to engage with the radical reformers, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Uh, like I said, we have the advantage of having historical distance. Mm -hmm. um, today, who are the children of the Anabaptists? Where where would we find them? Uh, what I mean, uh, Mennonites, Amish, Amish, Mennonites, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, and we can and we can trace that that lineage. Um, and again, a lot of that, a lot of the the distinction between groups like that, um, even the you know. The Old Order Amish, uh, for instance, I mean, a lot of the, the division between all of these really comes down to how much do they see interaction with the world? How much do they see themselves as really breaking away from and separate from uh, the world? How do they, how stringent are they willing to maintain this pure, regenerate church body? Um, and, they were very. They were. They were willing to 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 be pretty strict themselves when it comes sure. to, to issuing the ban. Sure. Uh, in, Some in more so than others. Yeah. I mean, that even within even within the the Amish and the Mennonite tradition, there are divides on, you know, how stringent do we apply this, um, and how 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 much grace is to be is to be offered as well. One last question before we finish. Uh, Calvin's wife. What was her relationship to Anabaptists? Did she did she have some relationship to? Did she have an Anabaptist background? Yeah, well, sure. She was uh, once married to an Anabaptist, and I think this is one of the fascinating things for me to think about. We talk very we talk a lot about the reformers, right? But we rarely talk about their marriages uh, and their wives, their families. But the reality is, I mean, here's a case: Elaine Bure is is married formally to an Anabaptist. Um, and and that's going to be something that Calvin will have to will have to deal with. This is this is his, you know, her second marriage. We see this like with Zwingli. I mean, Zwingli was married to on Reinhardt, uh, who herself was was a was widowed and has children. He has a blended family. Like these things are all deeply complex. And we sometimes again we try to we see the Reformation as very simplistic. We see this 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 theology as um, 
as, as in some respects almost flat. Remember, these guys are developing, they're thinking, their, their theologies are not just shaped by the Bible, but they're being shaped by their encounters and their experiences and their, their, um, their context are pressing in on them. And so uh, it is, it is a, an endlessly complex, this is why I love the era. It's endlessly complex and fascinating. They are just like us. In yeah. that they are flesh and blood people. Um, they make, they do great things, and they do horrific things, all in the name of, of Jesus. They have uh, great things that are to be lauded and admired, and in many ways emulated. And then there are also things that are utterly horrific and leave us aghast at what they would do. Uh, but again, is that not is that not the church in the 21st century? Is that not who we are uh, as Christians today? In this way. You know, humanity is the same. And if nothing else, even as somebody who loves this era and loves to look back at the men and the women of the Reformation, it's always a reminder to me of their flaws. Uh, and this is why we don't we don't serve them. It's why we serve Christ. It's why we serve uh, the, the God man, the perfect one who lived the the, the obedient life on, on our behalf. And so um, and that's you know, his sacrifice. Uh, is 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 ultimately what sets us apart. That that's a that's a great word uh, to to close our program. Um, we've been listening to Dr. Uh, Stephen Ecker, uh, who is um, professor of Reformation studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, this is the Christ and Culture podcast. Let me encourage you if you enjoy this podcast to to rate our podcast. Go ahead and give us five stars. We will appreciate that. And also write a review. Uh, and by doing that, that helps to get out the word about our podcast. I'm Ken Keithley, wishing you a great day.